Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's the Wonky Show. Organised crime and TikTok ads. The NAO has a report on franchising. We'll look at that. Market exit. Are the protections good enough? Plus, UCAS figures are out and who's paying a living wage? It's all coming up. The, the, the example of the accounts you just gave, Jim, is an extreme version of profiteering. And what I would like to know is whether the universities that are franchising to that provider are aware of the high levels that the um, provider is taking on that. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Associate Editor Jim Dickinson and here to tighten up the sector's safeguards as usual three terrific guests. Nicola Dandridge is Professor of Practice in Higher Education Policy at the University of Bristol. Nicola, your highlight of the week please. Well, I don't know if it's a highlight, but I'm a member of the board of the University of Glasgow. And yesterday um, I joined their student experience committee. I'm a member of that, too. And it's just always completely fascinating having that insight into Scotland, which in many respects, it's the same students suffering from you know cost of living and all the rest of it. But there is such a different feel in Scotland. And it's something that I think we just always need to take into account. Different country, different administration, different priorities. Fascinating. Fascinating stuff. And uh, Jonathan Grant is director at Different Angles. Jonathan, your highlight of the week, please. Well, at a professional level, I think I said this last time as well, but data. Um, I've been doing a bunch of um, multivariate analyses on our um, project looking at the cost drivers of peer review, um, which is fascinating. Um, But at a personal level, um, my son Noah, 16-year-old son, signed off on the proofs of a collection of poems this week. Um, So um, keep an eye out for that book later in the year. Well, Will do. And Debbie McVitie is editor at Wonky. Debbie, your highlight of the week, please. Um, Well, Jim, this week I've been spending some time with uh, middle managers as part of a development programme run by um, former Vice-Chancellor of the University of Lincoln and friend of the show, Mary Stewart. Um, And she brought me on to talk about the student condition. And it was just really fascinating to hear about how some of those individuals are kind of coping with change agendas and kind of and and the kind of work that they're the kind of work that they're doing to try and kind of be good leaders in that context. And that's almost really I think they were sort of very underappreciated group of people so it was really nice to spend some time with them and hear their stories great stuff so yes we start this week with organized crime the nao has been digging into franchising debbie yeah so um the national audit office has produced a report on franchise provision um in universities and this is where uh, a, a, uni- a university validates courses that are delivered by a partner and we have covered this on the site in the past um where we have raised concerns about a number of things that feature in the national audit office report so basically the conclusion is that the there, there are still quite a lot of there's still quite a lot of kind of ambiguity about who exactly is responsible um, for these students and how that works and the you know a number a number of sort of places where it's kind of quite quite possible that the system could be open to fraud so we, we learned from the report that there have been several instances in the past couple of years where there has been you know significant evidence of fraud has been raised and the student loans company and OFS have been working to you know to sort of un- uncover what's going on behind that um, and it and it's and it has and it's raised these questions about the recruitment practices of some of these of, of some of these providers um, the extent to which we have evidence about the degree of engagement of the students uh, the, the, whether those students are kind of able to stay on course and complete but whether those students are <laughs> Are um, are even students um, in some cases, um, and the conclusion is not necessarily that there is a kind of smoking gun um, where, but it, but there there is a, a, a I think a recognition that the sort of um, oversight and safeguards in this area probably need to be tightened up um, if, if if public money and um, and you know potentially some really quite vulnerable people are, are going are going to be safeguarded. Um, so the Public Accounts Committee has launched um, an inquiry, um, and that is and uh, that is now taking evidence, um, and so we you know we will continue to sort of see I think. Uh, regulation in this area t- to, be, to get tighter and tighter. Nicola, the, uh, the, 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 one, of the, one of my reflections reading the report is that the, the kind of respective responsibilities between DFE, OFS and the SLC all look like a bit of a mess. I don't know if it's a mess, but I think um, the the NAO are right to identify it uh, in that there's overlapping responsibilities. But then, there's, you know, there's overlapping responsibilities in quite a few areas. I think what they do flag is that um, the SLC's powers are you know, limited to 
forward in relation to the individual student, not not the providers. And the OFS hasn't got power to um, investigate fraud. And it's just, you know, it just seems to be falling between the cracks. And one of the things that came over to me really strongly is just how the incentives work here. So, um, you know, they talk about the fact there's no regulation of agents and and the the, the referral charges up to 500 quid a student and um, franchisor providers retaining up to 30% of the tuition fee. You know, you put all this together with the, the sort of slight lack of clarity about oversight responsibilities, and you can see why they're concerned, why the PAC are going to do an inquiry into it. Yeah, Jonathan, I mean, you know, in many ways, the, the, I, I guess the even if you're relaxed about private providers, one, once all sorts of people are able to make all sorts of money at, at various levels, this, this kind of thing becomes almost inevitable, doesn't it? Yeah, I, um, I wouldn't say inevitable. I, I, I think, I, I mean, I think that we discussed it. Interestingly, we discussed this last time Nicola and myself were on the podcast. Um, and that was in, um, December 2022. So I think that's quite a, um, interesting gap, um, it's taken for the NEO to get to this stage, although obviously they have to do their, their research. I, I think there are two sort of points here, which I'd sort of make. One, I do think we need to differentiate between the nature of the provider and the funding. Um, so the, the issue here is the, basically the government backed student loan scheme. Um, if you didn't have that and it was all private tuition, it wouldn't be an issue. Um, and then, as Nicola says, the, 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 then the issue is, um, this is falling between the cracks of the regulatory framework. Um, and actually some of the incentives seem extremely high and, you know, arguably, um, immoral if, if, um, providers, um, or the franchises are retaining 30% of fees and such like. Um, so that seems in my mind to be the issue. How do you tighten up, um, the regulatory framework that, that fills in the gaps? Um, the other thing, Jim, just a, a shout out to Wonky, because, um, I think you guys, um, you picked up in a piece in the New York Times, didn't you? Um, and then you followed through on it. And, and this is a good example, I think, of the impact uh, an organization like Wonky can have. The fact that it has now been picked up by the National Audit Office and PAC um, is important because it potentially undermines the credibility in the sector. Um, and the final thing I would say, which the NAO report says as well, um, such arrangements are not wrong. The fact that we have franchise provision um, very much um, meets certain requirements in, in, in the sort of marketplace. Um, so we need to be careful not throwing the baby out with the bathwater on this as well. Debbie, obviously, you know, there's there's always been, well, for a long time, there's been franchising. And, you, you know, the, the the DFE line in the report is that um, it helps to kind of widen access and so on. But, you know, one of the kind of big players in this this area um, has got a tuition fee income of 72 million in the last accounts. Um, and that's presumably after the money has been retained by the franchising university and a pre-profit, a pre-tax profit of 39 million. And was the loan scheme ever designed to generate those mm. sorts of profits? I think it is. I think it is quite quite telling when you look at the discourse around um, the the mainstream part of the sector, and I, or you know the, the you know the, the, the sort of the, the large but you know the large institutions that are predominantly kind of publicly funded, um, and 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 the kind of the, the struggle in that part of the sector to make ends meet on UK tuition fees, um, you know, which are increasingly kind of you know increasingly sort of sub- subsidised from from international tuition fees, um, and actually some of course some of these private providers will be offering international education as well, so some of that profit will be will, you know may relate to that, um, but. But you know, when you, you, given that given that the margins on home on, on home student education are generally thought to be extremely tight indeed, the, the fact that it, it, it apparently is possible to deliver validated provision um, with with profit margins at that scale should, at the very least, be raising an awful lot of eyebrows. Because I, I don't know how you do that unless you are. Um, I mean. You know, unless either the kind of the mainstream part of the sector is kind of quietly siphoning off lots and lots of, of tuition fee to fu- to fund things that are unrelated to teaching, so some of this might be about sort of smaller estates and 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 that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, the, the sort of scale of that profit is is raising questions. And I do th- I think there's quite an interesting kind of parallel with the the case that's been making the headlines over the past couple of weeks, um, the postmasters and the post office. Um, and what you know what was very clearly um, on the sort of institutional side, an awful lot of people you know either convincing themselves or outright lying. About 
about what's going on, you know, that the, what, the, what's going on is fine. And, and, you know, looking looking at information in front of them and saying, well, I can't, this this, this doesn't sort of match with my view of the world. So I'm, I, I, I'm not going to kind of engage with it. I mean, we'll, we'll, I guess we'll never really know what, what, what happened inside inside the institution that, that caused, you know, ca- caused such, such a problem. But there is, I think, some lessons to be learned about um, institutional levels of interest in things that look a bit inconvenient. Um, and, 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 you know, and I think, you know, it, the questions, the questions being asked should be very much about sort of saying, how can we be absolutely sure? Not about saying, we've probably got to assume this is fine. But I mean, but, but that, that, that's interesting, isn't it, Nicola? Because, because our sort of quality assurance norms in the sector, to some extent, depend on a level of, um, curiosity and independence within a large institution where lots of people feel free to kind of speak their mind. But I can imagine a scenario where some people are kind of sat around in a working group and the chair reminds everyone how important this income is and everyone suddenly kind of backs off from asking the difficult questions. I think that's uh, absolutely right. And there's always this tension between autonomy, which is so strongly associated with the success of our sector, and um, <coughs> allowing those sort of practices to happen because you want the university su- to succeed. And I mean, I, you, know, you can see how governing bodies very much focused on the bottom line, as Debbie says, or as you just said, um, are just not going to want to challenge these sort of things because by challenging it, you could be drawing attention to financial vulnerabilities. And I mean, you know, I would say this, wouldn't I? But I think that's why you need a regulator because the incentives in this sort of environment push towards behavior that may simply not be in the public interest. And I think Debbie's point about making the comparisons with the post office is really interesting. I mean, it's not as extreme, obviously, but the way the, way the financial pressures can slowly and corrosively erode that sense of what, you know, the right thing is to do is is just is just there is a parallel there, and I think as well. I think what's really important to say is you know because one of the things that is very clear it, it's certainly in 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 these cases somebody's lying to somebody, <laughs> but it is perfectly possible I think for most people in in the ecosystem that kind of creates these situations to, to be acting in in good faith or at least with a kind of only a degree of um uh, you know with only only a kind of moderate degree of willful blindness. I think I think this is just sort of human beings, and I think you know and and, and I mean yes I I do agree with Nicola. I mean, this is why kind of, you know, tight regulation is, is really important. Jonathan, should, should, should we know who, who, who the providers are? Because, you know, we don't know the name of any of the providers, do we? And this is public money and so on. Should we know by now? Yeah, well, so that's, that's exactly what I was going to suggest. Um, because surely um, the issue should be that, you know, the, 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 the example of the accounts you just gave, Jim, is an extreme version of profiteering. Um, and it's profiteering on public money. Um, and what I would like to know is whether the universities that are franchising to that provider are aware of the high levels that the um, provider is taking on that. Um, and I think the only way you can do that is to move to some form of transparency where we understand these relationships because, as you say, it's public funding. Um, if it wasn't public funding, then that's fair enough. That's a that's a private matter. Um, and that's why I said I think the issue here is because we have a student loan book, which is backed by government. Um, that's why it is in the public interest to understand these things. Yes, yeah, so I guess the other thing is this is this is student debt, isn't it? And, you know, some in some cases, presumably students are now spending the rest of their life kind of paying this off. And one of the things that kind of strikes me from a choice point of view, Debbie, is that if, if we look at the, the franchised two providers, the alternative providers here, we can't see the kind of outcomes for those providers can we yes and i think i think there's a kind of broader question here about the sort of the the, the presumption that that um franchise provision can you know can widen participation i think is a truism you know of course it can um and but you you really need to you want to be very kind of clear about is it so some of this relates to the kind of the sort the, the you know the the location of the provision often you know which is which is often in london which is not exactly underserved for higher education provision um you know whereas you're not you know you you you're not going to see franchise provision from independent providers popping up in parts of the country where there isn't a kind of established market. And I think that does, that does kind of, that does rather undermine the kind of WP case. But yes, also, you know, the student, the student, the student experience and the quality of, of what's provided, the, the, the sorts of courses, again, those for which there is a market, there's absolutely no kind of shame in providing for, uh, you know, for a demand if the quality is there. But if, yes, if we can't see the student outcomes, um, you know, the, the rest of the sector is, is feeling extremely kind of scrutinized on, on, you know, what, what, 
are often some sort of very, very, very modest kind of uh, challenges around student outcomes. So to have this part of the sector, you know, com- completely invisible, I think doesn't kind of, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's essentially a very inconsistent approach. And I think probably kind of damages the idea that the sector as a whole is working collectively together to expand access to higher education. Hmm. Nicola, what do you think should happen next here? Right. Well, um, can I just follow up on the point that Debbie's made in that, interestingly, the report notes that quite a lot of these courses are business and management courses. And we know from some of the work that OFS has done that they are concerned about the quality and outcomes there. So there's a sort of picture emerging, isn't there, of a a sort of vulnerability in the quality and legitimacy of these courses. What should, what should be done? Well, I, 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 th- I think with this, the spike in numbers, the spike in apparent fraud suggests that there needs to be a shift in terms of the focus. And it looks like that's what's going to happen. And I think there needs to be a very tight agreement between DFE, OFS and um, the SLC with very clear responsibilities and a prioritisation of this work. I mean, I'm not saying anything very original here because that's pretty much what the NEO suggests. But um, I think what, what comes over really strongly from that report, and I mean, it wasn't so, it was, this was an issue when I was at the OFS, but not quite as extreme as it is now, is um, it, this lack of powers. And this is the sort of area that needs powers and whether it's you know within the DFE or the OFS or the SSC, I don't think it really matters as long as as long as there's absolute transparency about responsibilities and accountability. And I rather agree with you. I think there needs to be greater transparency about the providers. I suspect part of that is to do with the fact that if if these names were published, uh, and, and you know there'll be all sorts of um, legal caveats about that. But if they were published, would that disincentivize providers from reporting concerns to the SLC and the OFS? So I think there's an element of pragmatism in all of this. But I mean, this mm. is this is public funding. I think the public needs, you know, that we, we need and students need to have transparency about who these providers are, not least the, the students who are um, being exploited right at the end of the chain here. Yeah. Debbie, do you think um, do you think there, there ought to be, you know, perhaps a category of registration for providers who are being franchised too? Um, I mean, possibly, uh, you know, the sort of the, the 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 question I think is is, and I'm sort of questioning whether the public accounts committee, whether you know, whether a kind of classic call for evidence will actually surface some of this, is the extent to which um, there is a visible, you know, there's a visibility of an evidence base, and I think, you know, I think certainly there should be, you know, I don't know about category of registration per se, but certain, certainly I think there should be an expectation either for the um, franchising institution or for, or for the providing institution to be able to provide, you know, the relevant kind of data sets. Um, the question I have is whether, and you know, and then of course you get into questions about burden and all the rest of it and kind of capability. Um, but you know that, that that you know that's probably the debate. The question I think is is about um, do people feel is is this such is 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 are what we're talking about is a sort of is a sort of um, incompetence and misalignment of incentives that can be sort of you know regularized um, with you know most most actors in the system working in good faith and, and a sort of handful perhaps not, or are we talking about a kind of systemic um, premise that? That requires a degree of bad faith for it to work at all, and actually, it's going to be quite hard to get evidence of that, isn't it? Because lots and lots of people are invested in, in, in not, you know, making sure that evidence doesn't exist. So, you know, I think, I think, I think there does need to be a kind of, uh, we do sort of need to go in and sort of, I guess, in good faith, but with a, with a degree of suspicion, uh, you know, if if the evidence of, you know, in, in order to really understand what's happening here. Um, and so, yeah, so so I, and so I think until we kind of have a really strong sense of the scale of you know of bad faith actors and, and in that system, it's going to be very hard to know what the kind of right regulatory responses. And actually, actually, can I just add to that, Jim, that I think this question of there being no regulation of agents is you know, a big concern. I, I, I hope that's looked at very closely because I think the role of agents in this context is is of concern. Yes, my sort of top tip is to is to choose a series of European languages and then put in Student Finance England into TikTok in those languages and you will find all sorts of dodgy things going on. At least to my mind, they look dodgy. Um, Jonathan, this, this, you know, if you go back to that kind of profit thing is, is it even possible to deliver what we know to be higher education on those sorts of margins you know what, what do we think higher education is and 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 do the kind of current definitions the kind of minimums in the in the ofsb conditions actually kind of deliver it do you think well the short answer to that is no um as we're discussing in, in, in a few minutes and we look at the accounts of universities that they're increasingly in deficit which says that you cannot take that level of profit. Um, now, clearly, these providers are focusing on, on high margin courses and what like. Um, but I think that, you know, that gets us back to the quality question. Um, but one other point I, I, I would just make um, in reading the NOA, NAO report um, was it struck me that here's an example of actually where the systems work quite well. 
um, in you know, which in you know, in, in Britain today is is not often occurring. Um, because th- th- there's this issue, and it's quite a niche issue, um, which has increased um, in recent years. Um, there is evidence of um, fraud. The, the, the various regulators raise that to the audit committees within government, um, and then the National Audit Office has picked up on that, and that's gone to the PAC. Um, you know, that's how the system is designed to work. Um, so in terms of solutions, I do think we need to um, let the PAC um, go through that process. Um, but as Debbie said, it may be that they, the type of recommendations coming out of the PAC are not of sufficient detail. Um, and we may need to, as a sector, go beyond that. But actually, I think the systems work quite well in this case. Good. Now let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, my name is Chris Webb, and I work as a career consultant at the University of Huddersfield, focusing specifically on supporting final year students and graduates with their career development and managing the transition from education to employment. This week, along with my HE careers colleague, Natalie Freeman, UEA award officer at the University of East Anglia, I wrote for Wonky about building the careers bridge between HE, FE and secondary education, and why it's so important that careers professionals and other staff involved in delivering careers and employability in the HE sector have a better understanding of policy development in the wider careers landscape and also how careers education, information advice and guidance is being delivered at all stages of education so that this can inform our own strategy and practice. In the article, Natalie and I write about how recent policy proposals from both the current government and the opposition for an all-age career system could have an impact on how we deliver careers and employability in a higher education context, the importance of learning from secondary education and FE colleagues about how they're delivering career support to students, and some practical steps that are already being taken to help build the careers bridge between schools, colleges and universities, including skills award partnerships between universities and local schools, podcasts for heads of sixth forms detailing what students can expect from their university career service, and collaborating with student ambassadors to help promote the benefit of engaging with careers and employability support. Now, next up this week, talk of market exit is in the air, Jonathan. Well, yes, Jim, there there are lots of um, euphemisms in this space, market exit, loss of provision, um, all describing the unthinkable idea that a university or universities could go bust. Um, And as Jess Lister and Jonathan Simons reminded us on a piece in Wonky this week, um, the current system is actually designed to allow universities to go bust. The 2016 white paper actually stated, and I quote, the possibility of an exit is a natural part of a healthy, competitive, well-functioning market. And the government will not, as a matter of policy, seek to prevent this from happening. Um, and this has gone up the agenda um, because of a report that Universities UK commissioned um, from PwC, which was published earlier in the week. Um, strongly recommend reading this report. It is not long, um, but it's got a lot of really good detailed stuff in there. And whilst it is quite sort of um, pessimistic, it's not all doom and gloom. There are um, some sort of helpful suggestions and opportunities um, to allow the sector to move to improve financial sustainability. Um, but at its heart, as the report points out, the, the question is quite, um, the problem is quite um, simple. We, you know, we have this perfect storm of increased costs and a risk of declining revenues um, in, within sort of entrenched cross-subsidies that have been around um, for over a, a generation. And the report concludes that there are about 40% of the universities examined are forecasting a deficit in 23-24. Um, a couple of things I took out of the report was, A, you know, um, the high level of staff costs, 54% of all costs are staff costs. Um, that's perhaps not surprising because university and education are people businesses. Um, but if you want to reduce costs, that means you basically are reducing staff. Um, the well-documented um, real-term decline in student fees, um, estimated now to be in England at £6,000 a year and arguably low in Scotland. Um, and the um, losing money on research with recovery now at full economic costs at around um, 68%. So you combine all of these um, issues um, and you have a loss-making environment, which traditionally has been um, filled in by um, subsidies from international students. Um, but as the PwC report identifies, um, there's an increased risk that um, the flow of international students could decline, um, partly um, as a result of um, government strategy in reducing immigration and, and tightening up on the graduate um, route. And, and that, that's the real risk in all of this. 
Um, now, worth pointing out that whilst we on this um, podcast and probably most of our listeners um, see this as a problem, um, there are people who actually see this as an opportunity. Um, there's a column in The Telegraph this week by Michael Deacon, who wrote, and again, I quote, the collapse of our universities is one of the best things that could happen to Britain. Um, so whilst we often frame this as a technocratic issue, um, I don't think we should lose sight um, of the politics. So I guess the questions, Jim, here is, you know, I think the, the problem is well understood um, and it is a truly wicked one. Um, I think the solution is much, much harder um, in how do we move to financial sustainability? And secondly, how do we think about the unthinkable? So if we did see a university going bust with high number of students, how do we protect those students? Um, and what is the process um, for that going forward? Nicola, obviously, as, as, as Jonathan and, and Jess point out on the site this week, that there's, there's a kind of underpinning assumption, I guess, that, that when, you know, kind of DFE was originally talking about, you know, the, the, the idea that market exit was a, was, was, a, was a healthy part of a kind of market, the assumption was that they were talking about perhaps challenger providers, new providers, small providers whose students perhaps could be moved to another institution. It, it, that, that, it almost certainly wasn't written around a kind of large established university, was it? I'm sure that's right. Um, but I think what they would have said is that there is a massive distinction between a managed exit and a disorderly exit. So a managed exit is where, say, you know, student numbers are declining, suggesting students no longer want to study those courses or go to that particular provider. And therefore, it, it, its exit is, is managed in a way that protects um, students, stakeholders, staff, and so on. And I think that's what was envisaged. I think no one on the planet, with maybe the exception of the Daily Telegraph columnist, would want to see a disorderly exit where everyone loses out. And actually, I mean, even even the Daily Telegraph columnist, I think his point expressed in slightly absurd terms was that um, in his view, too many people are going to university. So that was his point rather than that he sort of, you know, embraced the prospect of universities um, going bankrupt. So I think the, the, the point here is how to ensure that any um, any market failures are managed in a way that protects students. So that, I think, is what the DfE would was getting at when they made that point. I guess the interesting point, Nicola, is, is, is I've been re-familiarising myself with um, student protection plans over the past week or so, and I can't find a student protection plan that says there's a kind of material risk of institutional failure. So I, I'm struggling to kind of link up what institutions are saying under the kind of regulatory regime about risk and how, how a failure would be managed and then the PwC report which seems to tell a completely different story what's yeah. what's kind of going on there well I think what's going on is that um, student protection look I, I'm not speaking for the OFS here obviously I left I left over a year ago well more than that um, so you know this is just my own perspective on it but um, student protection plans are very risk-based so if you've got a thriving successful university where there's no serious risk of um, insolvency or failure, then then the student protection plan that's published is likely to be like quite light touch. Where um, the regulators got concern about financial viability, and that will include some of the ones that the PwC reports identify or doesn't identify but refers to, then um, the, the OFS will be um, in close discussion with the university and uh, um, about a whole manner of um, interventions. And one of them will be sharpening up the student protection plan. Well, not just sharpening up, but making it you know, really bite and protect students and there'll be an ongoing process of exchange about that and one thing um, that's in the public domain but is often missed in this is that um, back in 2021 so that's when I was there there was um, uh, a, a new regulatory condition to protect students student protection direction c4 I think might be wrong on that but anyway what that did is give the OFS powers to intervene when it was concerned about um, institutional failure and it, it introduced powers to require really robust and detailed student protection plans and I think the problem is Jim that that's not visible that's happening behind the scenes and obviously there'll be communications with the student unions who'll be involved but um, basically it's an engagement that is going on below the radar risk dependent on risk and um, is probably happening across the sector but we just don't see it. 
Debbie, if you if, if you uh, if you were attending an open day today, and you look at the PwC report, I think you'd make a uh, you'd make a decent guess that by the time you get to your sort of third year, you probably won't be experiencing the things that you were told about on the open day, and and it's all the things that a university might do to avoid collapse that might radically change the student experience. But there doesn't feel like a lot of protection there either, does there? Yeah, I mean, well, there is protection. I mean, there's, there's 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 protection in the form of the quality regime, and of course, there's a conversation about whether the quality regime then sort of then sort of, then sort of delivers that um you, you know if this, if if the thing is if the thing is based around student outcomes how those outcomes are produced and the things the things that are kind of you know made available to call you know to create the environment in which those outcomes are produced um be, being kind of less and less you know as i guess the, the quality regime is agnostic about about that um as long as you know as long as students are, are getting the outcomes um so yeah but yes so i guess it, i guess it is inevitable that if a university has less money they're going to be trying to finding ways to um you know, to, to save money, and some of the, some of that is going to hit the student experience. I mean, we, we saw it in the nineties. You know, this is the sort of ebb and flow of higher education funding, and I think you know, we, we, you know, we certainly shouldn't shouldn't underestimate kind of what the consequences that are in terms of kind of strain on staff and impact on student experience. That said, good universities, you know, that are that are you know that are that are well led and that are well financially managed, will we'll sort of see some of this coming. And I think this is kind of particularly where the, you know in, in the autumn, um, you know, se- senior people at the OFS were kind of warning very strongly about avoiding optimism bias in in, in projections because this is all about being really really realistic about the you, you know your, your likely future income. You know, given you know you know notwithstanding kind of often policy changes kind of faster than financial projections can kind of accommodate, but you know adjusting, making decisions. You know, you know, understanding the cost base and and look and, and making decisions that mean that, that, that those consequences don't happen. So the kind of what you're describing is a sort of oh my goodness, we don't have any money. Let's let's remove this. Let's remove that. Let's let's not offer that anymore. And and you know, inevitably there'll, there'll be a, a, some of that will be happening. But you know, hopefully based on judgments about what is going to materially impact student experience and what is, you know, to all intents and purposes, nice to have. And you know, and 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 if a you know if a good quality experience is not able to be provided, then then you have to kind of make some tough decisions about whether that course is viable or not and you know not you know not 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 every university is going to be doing this kind of flawlessly and certainly the environment isn't such that it is really possible to do it flawlessly but i think you have to kind of assume a degree of good faith in, in attempting to kind of make good decisions about what is actually possible to be delivered and you know because because that's what the, you know that's what the quality regime demands and that's what kind of good practice demands but if you're at that open day today presumably you're hoping you know you're making a set of decisions about whether to go to that provider and indeed to go to a provider at all on more than you'll actually get to the second year you'll actually complete the course you'll actually get a graduate job i mean presumably on one level you're choosing a bunch of things that are kind of interesting and that are to some extent sold to you on that on that day should it be okay for a provider to say well do you know what the alternative would be to go under so we're going to halve the number of modules you get to choose from in your third year the answer is well those things are regulated by you know but you know but yeah i mean yes but that's but that's that's kind of the point isn't it you have to you have to you have to make a judgment about whether it's likely to be possible to to continue to deliver for the full breadth of the course right so if and 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 then you have to judge kind of what the demand for those modules is likely to be. So I mean, if you you know, if at the point if at the point of advertising the course you said these modules will be available and then you don't make them available, then you are in breach of your kind of contract with the student. I mean, that's just you know that 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 system already exists. Now the fact that some providers might do that and then you know and then de facto be in breach of and you know it, it would, would would obviously be a bad thing, even if they sort of said yes, but we don't have any money and this is why we had to do it. Um, the things I think that are perhaps more material is is about the kind of the things that cause. The, um, you know, in some ways, actually, I mean, I don't, some students will care an awful lot about module choice, but a lot of students will care more about the atmosphere on campus. And I think the atmosphere on campus is the thing that is probably going to be stripped out. It's going to be about, um, the, you know, the opening hours of, of services and the, um, activities that are going on and the funding available for the student union to put on stuff that makes, makes the shuttle makes bus campus station <laughs> want to be. Yeah. The sh- yeah. And, the, you know, so that's where I think, you know, you go to an open day and you see the best face of the university and you get, you get kind of, lo- you get a lovely vibe of kind of lots of buzzy activity as you know as the money drains away the buzz the buzz disappears and and that's kind of got a really material impact on your kind of your sense of belonging and your ability to thrive and all you know that's that's and 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 actually and a lot of that is not stuff that is really regulated by the quality regime and that's where the and and, you know to some extent that's where the worry is i think people really radically underestimate the importance of you know student support and campus community not people in the sector but people kind of fund you know people thinking about funding in the sector um you know this is what this is why michael deacon can say it wouldn't matter if universities collapsed because you know but not realizing that education happens in a community that's why people you know why people continue to go to university when they could still you know when they could just do a course online it's because of the community and the support infrastructure and the you know the, you know the environment that, that people are studying in 
Well, so yeah, I agree absolutely with what Debbie just said. I do think it's about community and it's not only the student community, it's the local community as well. Um, so if a university went bust, it'd have profound effects on a <clears throat> local economy. Um, and indeed, that's why politically, you know, it, that may not be allowed to happen, but you know, we'll have to see that um, play out. I, just a, a couple of comments here. So, um, I, I, you know, we, we can discuss the detail of what happens if and when there is a so-called market exit. And, um, that is clearly important and I'm not belittling that. But the fundamental question here is, is that the current funding regime is no longer working, um, in the interests of students staff and universities and and I think many people have seen that for a long time coming and, and we're starting to hit crunch time and we need to have that conversation and and we aren't having that conversation and I, I don't have the answers it's a difficult difficult conversation to have um but I, I do think the system is is getting to the point of being broken and it does need um reform in that sense and then my final um observation is uh, every time I, I sort of find myself in a conversation about student finance um after sort of my pre-university career, you know, I ran a, a think tank that employed about 100 people. Um, we never knew if we would have enough money to pay salaries three to six months out. Um, and we were constantly trying to sell to fill that pipeline to ensure that we could pay people. Um, universities have this incredible luxury of this three-year time frame. Um, and whilst I absolutely accept and do not want to belittle the financial situation we're in, compared to other sectors – um, despite that, the universities are actually in um, a more secure space when it comes to looking at certainties and uncertainties. So much of students' lives takes place under the radar, yet it's students' encounters around campus, their confidence in independent learning and the pressures of juggling their work and personal commitments that shape how they engage with learning and teaching. To really enable students to thrive requires knowing about the full extent of their lives, not just the bits that universities can most readily see and touch. But time and money are in short supply for universities and students, and with no let-up on funding in sight, carefully choosing interventions that will help students to both survive and thrive has become more important and even tougher. Deepening our collective understanding of what is in universities' gift to influence and how to do the things that make a difference is vital. So at our Secret Life of Students event, we'll be interrogating the contemporary higher education policy questions through the student lens, bringing together sector leaders and managers as well as student leaders and student union managers to find out how to respond in the student interest. What role should universities and student unions play in stoking or calming conflict on campus? What are the expectations that we should place on students themselves to create a good learning experience and how are they learning and how can we both measure it and support it outside of the classroom on the day we'll round up key findings into the student experience from the past year and we'll launch exciting new findings on the student experience beyond the classroom that's the secret life of students london 12th of march see you there now ucas has published its end of cycle data nicola and uh, some interesting tales about providers here yeah, this is really fascinating. So this is this is the data that's disaggregated by provider and subject and and some student characteristics. Though actually, the quality data is still to come later this month, I think. But anyway, it's been published for the twenty three cycle, and all the usual caveats about the fact that it um, doesn't include international students and there's limited, more limited coverage in in Scotland. Nonetheless, um, there is a. a a really strong overall sort of story, really, that um, Russell Group institutions, or at least some of them, have gained uh, student numbers, um, but most of the other groups um, have seen numbers decline. And I mean, even within those groupings, obviously, there's huge variation, but nonetheless, there is um, a reduction in um, in applications and um, the UCAS data. It's well presented. It's really interesting and worth looking at. But I mean, this is going to sound really obsequious because I'm doing a wonky podcast. But I do think David Kernan's analysis and his tableaus that's on wonky today. It's just so clear and so helpful. So um, and you can just play around and look at individual providers, and it's very easy and it's just fascinating. So um, I do recommend that. And I'm not going to pick out any particular providers but um, just a few points that came over to me quite strongly um, is that um, if you look at the subjects that's kind of really fascinating so you've got real reductions in design creative and 
industries and performing arts, which I think is just really worrying in terms of um, not just the future of those uh, subjects, but also you know the the economies that sit around it. But massive variation within that subject. So um, many universities seeing numbers going down, except Russell Group, where they go up. And within that, actually, small specialists are quite vulnerable. That's point incidentally that was picked up by the PwC report that we we're just talking about. So um, huge variation, but down. And then the, the area that's just just catastrophically down, continuingly declining is modern foreign languages. And that includes the Russell Group, minus 8.8% down. And I do think as a sector, as a country, we've just got to take this more seriously. What is happening about our lack of commitment to learning foreign languages? You know, we're going to become a mono, we're not quite, but we're going to, the assumption is that everyone else speaks English and that is just complete nonsense. And we really need to take this more seriously and it needs more coordination and more political urgency, I think. And then you see law going up, you know, isn't that rather sad? Education and teaching down. Anyway, so all these all these trends are, are documented and I think it makes for fascinating um, reading. So um, there we go. The tableaus and the analysis is there and it's to be looked at. Jonathan, in some ways, the, um, you know, the kind of numbers speak for themselves, don't they? I mean, if you, if you have a fundamentally demand-led system and you don't have any planning, this is the sort of thing that happens, isn't it? Yes. Um, and, there, you know, there's a number of different drivers in that, aren't there? So there's going to be demographic trends, which um, obviously are currently increasing, but um, are, as I recall, predicted to fall off, at least in England in um, 2030. But I think there's variance um, by different nations around that. Um, and then there's obviously the propensity to apply to go to university, um, which, you know, in the current sort of climate is, is um, at least challenged in the public rhetoric quite often, um, as indicated in the um, Telegraph column I, I quoted earlier. Um, and then, as Nicholas pointed out, you have um, within that demand, you have variances by both um, institutions and subject areas. Um, and, you know, these data do fluctuate, don't they, year to year, um, because that demand inevitably fluctuates year to year. Um, so it's hard to, I, I find it really hard to draw out sort of meaningful inferences from these data because because they are so noisy for understandable reasons. Um but Debbie, this uh, this issue about um, you know some you know just take the you know um, Nicholas point about modern languages, um, the 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 sense that you know most parts of the country have kind of got a, a set of big university you know multi subject universities that's starting to be challenged, isn't it? As 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 the as the numbers tick through each year, in 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 the sense that the um, most universities are delivering the full range of subjects. Yeah, yeah. Some, some some subjects are essentially shrinking. I mean, yeah, I think I, I, yes, and I think. That because because even even if even even in a number controlled system you still you still have a market and and you still have demand and I think it is it is telling I think with the caveat of course that you know I sort of share Nicholas' concern about where you know where, with with their foreign languages because it is you know it is it's obviously kind of part of a kind of rich diversity of subjects and and, and a very important one for our our kind of long term place in the world um, that. Um, you know, to some extent, I think you you just have to sort of accept that some subjects will just be popular, and it and it is it is notable. I think that kind of you know decade decades of efforts to kind of to resuscitate modern languages study in university has not has not apparently led to, to significant change. Um, and so some of the, you know there are kind of larger forces at work than than can necessarily be achieved. I think you know, and and I think also. And, and again, I, thought, I say this as someone with an English degree. I mean, and there is a kind of worry about, the, you know, what is perceived as a decline in the humanities. I think you do need to sort of situate this in in a kind of larger context. University study is is um, not necessarily the kind of vehicle for people to, you know, it's not the only vehicle for people to um, to learn and express their interests. So, you know, it, you know what we're not seeing, I think, is a sort of decline. I don't, well, you know, actually, I don't, I don't know, but you know, with, I don't think, we're, you know, we're not seeing a decline in the cultural and creative sectors. Certainly, maybe a decline in funding, but but you know, not a decline in interest and participation. Um, you know, they they continue to flourish, you know, in different ways. Likewise, you know, it is possible to to kind of learn and engage in foreign languages in ways other than than university study. So, I I don't I think the it's sort of there will be a natural kind of shifting in the pattern of subject provision. And I think the thing that it's probably the conversation that's probably quite important to have internally to an institution is is about to what extent do these subjects you know contribute to the character of our institution? What are they doing 
um, in the kind of broader picture? What, 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 what purpose are they serving in our local area? Um, when at a kind of as a sort of core thing, and this is not about sort of you know for some subjects this is about you know educating lawyers and doctors and social workers and, and teachers. In some subjects, this is about um, giving people an, an opportunity to immerse themselves in something that they care about with a view, with a view to kind of developing a skill set that will serve them well in their future lives. Um, and that that you know that is a slightly d- different proposition. So you've, I think you've just got to be quite sort of pragmatic about and about you know sort of frame, frame, you know think, 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 thinking about w- what is the subject doing in our world in in the world that we live in and and to what extent is this something that we can you know how, how can we how can we ensure that, that that those kind of agendas are realised but but perhaps not not necessarily by delivering a you know a range of modules in this subject but if the if the manager simply isn't there that was quite a long winded way of saying we should we should care about it but also not kind of not wring our hands about it I think Nicola one of my one of my favourite of uh, DK's visualisations in the uh, article today is um, when DK says um, I know some people like a map what he means is DK likes maps but <laughs> but I quite like maps too and and you know I guess you know on the one hand um, you know just from a raw access point of view in a lot of cases students can only attend a university that's nearby in in some cases there's a you know there are parts of our politics that want more students to study more locally rather than the kind of boarding school model of going off to another part of the country but you know as 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 subjects contract and, and perhaps concentrate in particular institutions that, that just that just the kind of access to the, the breadth of subjects from some bits of the country gets gets really restricted doesn't it yes and i think that's why um we need to to balance um supply and demand a bit more than we're doing at the moment i mean i entirely agree with what debbie says about it having to be demand-led in terms of student choice but on the other hand I mean, not, you're quite right about regional, um, prioritization. Um, that's, that's really important. But I think we also need to acknowledge that student choices are going to be constrained by what's available, obviously, their ability to move and travel. And, um, I think therefore we need a better balance between thinking how we can construct supply to enable proper student choice rather than just assuming student choice can dictate supply. It's just not that simple. And um, we've seen it happen in certain areas. I mean, if we look at the prioritization of STEM subjects um, within schools and feeding into university, I mean, that's that's really had a remarkable and positive impact. And there was one program that the OFS ran, which was to incentivize um postgraduate masters um, in AI for um, students from disadvantaged backgrounds. Again, I can't quite remember the detail, but that was the thrust of it. And it was very successful. So you can incentivize subjects that are needed, whether on a regional basis or on a national basis. And I just think we haven't quite got that balance right, that there needs to be more thinking about how we can support that kind of um, supply, because ultimately that then does enable um, better student choice. And you're right to focus on the maps. And DK, if that is his interest, is right to focus on geography. Because if you're born and brought up and educated at school in certain areas, then the truth is that you you might have far fewer choices and aspirations and expectations. And that that just is unacceptable in um, as part of our access and participation agenda. So I think there's a lot that sits behind this in terms of how students make their decisions that, that is revealed really in, in the way these the, the, the maps in particular are, are, are expressed. But In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. All of the data, really. And finally, 82% of universities now pay a living wage, Debbie. Great news. <laughs> yeah, this is excellent. I mean, this is this is very much Jonathan's story, and 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 uh, I'll, I'll sort of you know he should definitely kind of take the crown. So for a number for a number of um, years now, Jonathan's been um, 
uh, basically assess, assessing using using the tools at his disposal um, to find out which universities in the UK are either accredited with the Living Wage, wage Foundation, which means that they are not only paying a living wage to their own staff, but they're also ensuring working with their contractors to make sure that they are they are they are doing that too, and 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 um, and, and that they're sort of they're they're generally kind of validated on on, on all fronts. Um, and some universities that have sort of have, have made an informal undertaking with their staff or a pub, or a public 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 undertaking to to pay a living wage. Um, and that you know, thanks. I suspect, in you know, in no small measure, to Jonathan's efforts to to re- you know, raise the profile of the issue, to and not only that, to to also kind of work, you know, point universities in the direction of the Living Wage Foundation. We there was a session at the HE Festival in November, um, exploring you know how to get accredited. Um, that that number has has doubled um, over the past two years uh, of accredited universities. Um, and so this is really good news, um, and I think shows what can be done with, um, you know, with, with, a, with a bit of concerted effort and, and focus, you know, even in the in the teeth of, you know, what is really some quite challenging financial times for universities, as we've discussed sort of at some length um, in, in previous items. Nicola, obviously, we, uh, we, we were talking about financial sustainability earlier, at least in theory, if Labour get elected, one of the things that will happen relatively quickly is that the what's currently the kind of optional living wage, the, the real living wage will become the living wage and that will you know we'd have to assume that um the government won't instantly increase fees to be able to cover it wouldn't we yeah yeah i think that's right and it's going to have differential impact on on different universities depending on their their financial sustainability i mean one of the things that i was when i was reading jonathan's article is i just so wanted to know who are the universities and are they not paying because they can't afford it and they really are up against it or not and um it would be great, Jonathan, at some point to know who, who the universities are. <laughs> so, Jonathan, come on, Mike, shame them, shame them. Uh, nope. <laughs> they know who they are. Um, and, and they, they, so, but I, so I, I can give a sort of response to that. I do know that there are a small number um, who, out of a, almost a point of principle, think it is wrong to have their, um, their wage levels dictated um, by a third party. Um, there will be others, and I, and I know of a couple of others that um, definitely do it on financial sustainability grounds. I have to point out that I, I, I find the financial sustainability argument quite weak for two reasons. Um, one, the, the difference between the statutory minimum wage and the living wage is, you know, um, you know, one, one and a half pounds per hour. Um, and the number of people on um, a minimum wage in the university is relatively low. Um, so, you know, when we did this at King's, um, and we accredited, you know, the, the financial impact of that was not large um, at all. And far more importantly than the accounts is the moral arguments, because basically, if you say um, that we're not going to pay the living wage on financial sustainability grounds, you're basically saying we're exploiting our lowest paid staff to keep this business in um, in, 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 in a viable sense. And I, I just find that quite a, frankly, repugnant um, position um, to take. Um, but I do think that the, you know, I, I do think this is a good news story for the sector and we should be focusing, um, on that. And I think the, you know, the, the challenges going forward are A, to, um, persuade more universities to accredit, um, because as Debbie said, because of the third party, um, contractors come into that. And I think that's a, that's an important sector. Um, and secondly, to put pressure on those 22, um, to, um, sign up. Um, and, um, you know, I think, the sort of student unions have a big um, play in this, um, as well as staff unions in, in trying to push that agenda. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget, you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out how we can keep you and where you work ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the site and click subscriptions. So thanks very much to Nicola, Debbie, Jonathan, Michael Salmon, who makes the show happen. Uh, We'll be back next week. Until then, stay wonky. 